In late July of 2016, I was in Philadelphia. I was there working with The Post's team at the Democratic National Convention, where the Democratic Party would officially nominate Hillary Clinton for President of the United States. Hillary Clinton has secured the number of delegates needed to win the Democratic Party nomination for President Now, just before I arrived, major news broke. On the eve of the convention, WikiLeaks released thousands of emails from the DNC appearing to show favoritism towards Hillary Clinton. So the big question, could this create chaos on the convention floor among Bernie Sanders supporters? WikiLeaks released a trove of nearly 20,000 documents and emails from the Democratic National Committee. Those materials were allegedly obtained by Russia as part of a larger effort to interfere in the U.S. election. Going into this, you already have a suspicion among a lot of supporters of Bernie Sanders that the DNC and much of the party establishment in 2016 was not playing things fair. Sanders had been picking up momentum later in the race, and his supporters were concerned that a reluctance toward Sanders from the Democratic Party establishment might somehow mean the primary would be rigged against him. And then We see these emails. Those emails and documents revealed a pretty embarrassing look inside the Democratic Party operations. Though the emails didn't show evidence of a rigged process, they did show moments of perceived reluctance from party leadership around Sanders' momentum. I mean, there was a whole bunch of material that was that was taken in the hacks. Some of that material was more highlighted in the weaponized release through WikiLeaks than than others. And the kinds of things that were really highlighted were documents that were intended to create the impression that the DNC was favoring Hillary Clinton over Bernie Sanders. Yeah, it was a very emotional thing uh, for a lot of Sanders supporters to have to reckon with this, to have to see this publicly aired after what was a really, really grueling campaign. Tensions had been simmering all week leading up to the convention's final night, a Thursday. This was the day that Clinton was expected to secure and accept the nomination. And in light of the newly released DNC emails, many Sanders supporters were unwilling to accept the Clinton nomination without a fight. I was with a colleague weaving our way through downtown Philadelphia, getting as close as we could to the convention arena in a cab, until the driver finally kicked us out. He told us he couldn't get any closer. The streets were blocked by protesters. We'd have to walk. The protests were peaceful, but the emotion, the frustration was palpable. Versions of this continued inside the arena, with some Sanders delegates walking out in protest. Eventually that night, Clinton did secure the nomination. The party held its final roll call vote. That's the process in which each state publicly announces which candidate it pledges its delegates to. The last state to vote that night, Vermont, the home state of Senator Sanders. Thank you. Madam Chair, I move that the convention suspend the procedural rules. I move that all votes... All votes cast by delegates be reflected in the official record. And I move that Hillary Clinton be selected as the nominee of the Democratic Party for President of the United States. As the Democratic Party officially selected its nominee, then-candidate Trump saw an opportunity to deepen the schisms that had emerged. She knew what was going on. Hillary Clinton knew what was going on. She knew everything that was going on. She knew it's a rigged system that Bernie Sanders never had a chance, okay? He never had a chance. And if you look at it, 
look what's going on. They're having a lot of people marching. Now, a lot of those people are going to vote for us, I'll tell you right now. That was back in 2016, and yet it sounds so similar to what we're hearing from the president this time around. In tweets, at rallies, and in interactions with the press, President Trump has repeated an idea over and over again as the 2020 Democratic primary moves forward, that this year's Democratic primary is rigged against Bernie Sanders. And really, Trump's assertions about a flawed Democratic primary are just a piece of the story. He's stoking divisions based in part on information that the intelligence community concluded Russia weaponized to highlight those divisions in the first place. And as we confront another election year, recent reports show Russia hopes to interfere in our elections again. So how is Trump strategizing for 2020 in light of recent news? And how are things different this time around when a president with sizable power over intelligence and election security is seeking to win re-election himself? This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. And in this episode, what it takes to get there. I'm Allison Michaels. We are going to re-examine what election interference looked like in the 2016 Democratic presidential primary and how the ghosts of that experience are reappearing today. If you go back to the very beginning, Senator Sanders was not expected to be a major factor. He was sort of an afterthought at the beginning of the race. That's the Post's campaign correspondent, Sean Sullivan. He's spent months following the Sanders campaign around the country. I managed to catch him over the phone while he was on the trail in Las Vegas. But over time, he built big crowds. He won a lot of states. He won a lot of delegates. This became a much more competitive race. And the more competitive it became, the more real the prospect became that he should be taken seriously and that he could potentially compete for this nomination. Despite some momentum, Sanders' delegate count did not catch up to Clinton's. Heading into the conventions, many of his supporters held the belief that the process was unfair and that the party leadership was working against Sanders. They've always had a general sense that the party establishment has been working against them. And one of the things that you often hear people point to in Sanders' movement or in other movements is some of the ties between officials or donors or people at organizations like the DNC and the Hillary Clinton campaign. So a lot of the relationships that existed gave people some skepticism about what that dynamic was actually like, what that relationship was actually like. Meanwhile, as skepticism was growing among some Sanders supporters at home, U.S. intelligence officials found a foreign adversary had plans to undermine American elections from abroad. There were several different components of Russia's operations throughout 2016. And I would just remind that some of those operations actually really started back in 2013, gearing up for the ultimate election in in 2016. Laura Rosenberger is the director of the Alliance for Securing Democracy. She also worked on the National Security Council under President Obama and was a foreign policy advisor for Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign. So the first was the hack of the DNC and the weaponized release of those documents. A couple things we know. One is that in June of 2016, a cybersecurity firm called CrowdStrike did an investigation on the hack of the DNC servers and attributed it to Russian actors. We now know from um, Bob Mueller's investigation and subsequent indictments that the GRU, Russian military intelligence, is in fact the, the actor who hacked into the DNC. And in fact, we know from, again, the Mueller investigation that WikiLeaks essentially appears to have obtained the documents from the DNC hack from the Russians. 
So essentially, the idea was get into the DNC server, find documents that might be damaging, and then publicly release them as weaponized information. There was also a hack on several campaign officials' um, email accounts, including John Podesta, who was the campaign chair. And those emails were selectively released over the course of several weeks in the immediate run-up to the election in November of 2016. There was also uh, the targeting of... a what we now know were all 50 states election systems. None of those appear to have actually changed any votes, but there were intrusions and attempts to kind of probe into those systems to see where there might be weaknesses in the state's election systems. And then there was the social media manipulation, which really didn't become clear until after the election, which was the use of bots and trolls and fake personas and other kinds of tactics on social media to really manipulate the conversation. And it was the package of those tactics that really together constituted the interference operations that we saw from Russia in 2016. Hacking the DNC was one tactic allegedly used by the Russians among several that Laura laid out. But we've since learned from intelligence reports that Russia had broad goals in 2016 to disrupt American democracy. The intelligence community in its assessment that was released in January of 2017 concluded that Russia had three goals in its operation to interfere in the election. One was to depress support for um, Secretary Clinton to essentially disparage her. Two was to undermine people's trust in democratic institutions. And three was to help Donald Trump. Where I think the DNC hack really fit into that and the weaponized leak of those documents was two things. One, um, it was about sowing doubt in public trust in democratic institutions, right? Those documents were really used essentially to create and drive a narrative that the democratic primary process was unfair and that it was rigged. Two is that I would argue that by dividing Democrats against one another by creating this impression that the process was rigged, um, that it was unfair against Bernie Sanders. It did two things toward those two other goals. One was it helped suppress support for Hillary Clinton by kind of preventing the consolidation of, of Democrats behind her in some instances. And therefore, third, help Donald Trump, because if Democrats are less unified going into the general election, that's going to help the you know, the opposing nominee. Special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation did not establish that members of the Trump campaign conspired with the Russian government in its election interference. What we're talking about, though, is how Trump reacted to the DNC hacking news back in 2016. After Trump became aware of the DNC hack, he did begin to use the fractures in the Democratic Party to his advantage. The problem is that uh, Bernie Sanders has lost his energy, he's lost his drive. I think he's exhausted. You want to know the truth? Then who can blame him? But I think he's totally exhausted. But I think his supporters are not exhausted. And his supporters are liking what I'm saying in terms of trade. And we're getting ripped off in trade deals and lots of other things. So I think we're going to get a lot of those supporters to come with us. Trump is very good at, at picking up on on narratives that he thinks will be divisive. And this was certainly a narrative that was was divisive. And so by picking up on that and amplifying it, he was seeking to take this narrative and further amplify it um, from his own sources uh, or from his own mouthpiece. Well, there are a couple of reasons why he would do something like that. Post reporter Sean Sullivan again. One is to stoke discord on the other side. This is something that Trump has done over and over again, whether it's discord among his Republican rivals, whether it's discord among Democrats. 
anything that pits people against each other on the other side, on the side that he's trying to defeat, is something that, if you look at the way he's conducted himself, he's seen as politically beneficial. And then there was this prospect at the time that, you know, Trump running as an outsider, Trump running as an insurgent candidate against Hillary Clinton, who was seen broadly as the establishment candidate, might be in position to win over some Sanders supporters or, at the very least, keep them at home and keep them from voting for Hillary Clinton. And so you have this sort of electoral play that is also at work. If all of this sounds familiar to recent tactics from Trump and his allies, it should. In recent weeks, Trump has said that he hopes Sanders doesn't get a rigged deal. He's tweeted that the DNC is working with presidential candidate Mayor Mike Bloomberg to rig the primary against Sanders. And Trump even tweeted encouraging Sanders, don't let them take it away from you. Trump has also suggested that the DNC has rigged the process against Sanders in several press interviews. Well, he's saying pretty outspoken terms on social media and otherwise, I think, as well, that the, you know, he's warning about effectively a repeat of 2016 and warning Sanders supporters that they could be subject to an unfair system. And given all of the baggage, given all of the bad memories that a lot of Sanders supporters have from 2016, this is the kind of thing that, that could potentially rankle some of them. Uh, a lot of Sanders supporters I've talked to about it say they don't listen to the president, so it's unclear what effect this is actually going to have in the long term. But it seems like Trump, once again, sees an opportunity to create some emotional and personal strains in the Democratic Party. It's one of the biggest things that I hear from voters and activists who show up at Sanders events. When I talk to them about their long-term outlook, they'll tend to say, look, yeah, Senator Sanders is doing really well right now, but I'm not sure he's going to win the nomination. And I say, why? And they'll say, well, the DNC is going to try to stop him, or the, the Democratic establishment is going to try to stop him, or other campaigns are going to try to stop him. And so there is this fear consistently, even if he's doing well in the polls, among a lot of people who, who show up at his campaign events, that if he is on the verge of winning this nomination, it could be taken away from him in a way that is unfair. And I think a lot of that is certainly fueled by the experience of 2016. But unlike 2016, today, in 2020, Sanders is the frontrunner in the Democratic primary race. So why pursue a strategy that solidifies Sanders' base? You talk to a lot of Republicans right now, they look at this Democratic primary and they see Senator Sanders as the candidate that they want to run against. And the reason for that is they say that his views, he's a self-identified Democratic socialist, he is uh, very, very liberal compared to the other candidates running, and they view him potentially as the uh, candidate that, that they might most easily be able to defeat. Uh, but at the same time, there are Republicans who see an organic base that Senator Sanders has, and it's a base that turns out in large numbers at rallies, and it's a base that in some ways you know, is as loyal to Senator Sanders as, as President Trump's base is to him. And so some of them are a bit more cautious about the prospect of running against him. I think it goes back mainly to this idea of sowing discord in the opposite party, of trying to create hard feelings, stoke hard feelings on the Democratic side as much as possible. And then if you pick off, you know, even a very small percentage of Sanders supporters in the general election to either vote for President Trump or to stay home or to vote for a third-party candidate, then from Trump's perspective and from the Trump campaign's perspective, 
that can be just as useful. Having people stay home who would vote for the Democratic nominee, uh, if it's Sanders or if it's somebody else, is something that, that could help President Trump. And, and what about Democrats then? Do top Democrats see Sanders as a liability or, or as a movement candidate or as something else entirely? I think that right now you are seeing a lot of top Democrats worried about the prospect of him winning the nomination for political reasons. And they see him as a liability in some of the battleground districts, some of the battleground areas in the country where this race will be fought because they look at the 2018 midterm model where they ran a lot of non-controversial candidates who talked about what they called kitchen table issues, a lot of non-controversial things. And they see that as sort of the recipe in the Trump era for how to win. And the fear is that Sanders is nominee. This isn't an election that is a referendum on Trump. It's an election that's a referendum on socialism or an election that's a referendum on Medicare for all or an election that's a referendum on free college tuition and on and on and on. And so I think the concerns that traditional Democrats have about him stem more from, from political concerns than anything else. And how do Sanders supporters argue with that? What's their take? Their perspective, the only way to beat Donald Trump is to generate excitement, to bring in new voters, to bring in young voters, and playing it safe or running a candidate who is not seen as somebody who takes positions that excites people is exactly the wrong way to do it. And that's something that Sanders supporters believe could actually cause Democrats to lose the election. So you have two very, very different theories of the case. One is the traditional Democratic view right now, which is, well, Trump's already unpopular. We run a candidate who doesn't incite controversy in their positions, then a lot of Trump supporters might naturally gravitate toward them. But the other side is the Sanders view, which is, look, we don't excite people. We don't energize people. The same thing that happened in 2016 with Hillary Clinton is going to happen right now. So then what does the Sanders campaign say? Have they weighed in on Trump's approach to suggesting that the primary may be rigged against Bernie? Well, they're pushing back against it. You've seen Jeff Weaver, one of his top advisors, uh, come out and say, no, the system is not rigged against this. No, President Trump is not right. They're trying not to give Trump a voice that people will listen to in this. They're trying not to fan the flames. They're trying not uh, to delegitimize this process in any way and have... Trump able to say, hey, look, the Sanders campaign themselves say that they agree with me. They've tried to push back on him pretty much. So then with Trump exploiting this Democratic discord as he did in 2016, and we have Sanders supporters holding on to the same fears they had four years ago, how far has our system really come since then? Is our primary process somehow more vulnerable to claims of rigging today than it was four years ago? It, it looks that way so far, especially given the close margins that we've seen, given the wide open nature of this race, and given the problems that we've seen so far, people uh, are more suspicious by nature than they have been in the past. People are worried about interference, not just from uh, President Trump, but from foreign entities potentially who might be interfering in the primary process. Because there's an added wrinkle here. Even as the president plays to some of the divisions within the Democratic Party that evidence from the intelligence community shows were stoked by Russia, there's new reporting that foreign forces could come into play again. Last week, The Washington Post reported that Russia wants to see Trump reelected, and Russia is trying to help the Sanders campaign. Deja vu, right? 
Though we don't yet know what specific steps, if any, U.S. intelligence officials think Russia may have taken to help Trump so far in 2020, we do know that a senior U.S. intelligence official told lawmakers last week that Russia wants to see Trump reelected, that Russia views Trump's administration as more favorable to the Kremlin's interests. The Washington Post also reported that intelligence officials told Sanders that Russia is attempting to help his presidential campaign as part of an effort to interfere with the Democratic primary. The idea of Moscow helping two rival campaigns reflects what intelligence officials have described as Russia's broader interest in sowing division and uncertainty around American elections. We we don't have a full picture from intelligence officials. I asked Laura how she's thinking about what this means for the 2020 election. And it's one of the things that I think is concerning to analysts like me who watch these issues all the time, that we have these very unclear leaked reports from the intelligence community, which actors across the political spectrum are using to further spin and try to use in political ways. And that's concerning to me because with one of the goals of the Russians has consistently been undermining our faith in institutions and trying to sow doubt, the less real information we have and the more spin we have, the more vulnerable we are. A couple things that we can infer that I would say. The first is that You know, while I think our tendency in the U.S. is to think about issues like this as something that's uniquely American, right, or uniquely about us, um, in fact, this really isn't just about us. Russia has been carrying out these kinds of operations across the transatlantic space for the better part of a decade. Other countries' elections have been targeted. And in fact, most of these operations really aren't even just about elections. These are ongoing operations to try to undermine democratic institutions within countries that Putin sees as his adversaries or competitors. And elections are one really important opportunity in those operations, but they are not the only target. I think the overriding goal that's really important to understand of these operations is that chaos is the point, right? It is about weakening your competitors, dividing them from within, and really just sowing chaos and doubt. And so what I see happening today is essentially a continuation of that. And it's a continuation of what we saw in 2016, everything we just talked about, right? So trying to divide Democrats, trying to convince people that the process is rigged, that there's not integrity in the system. You know, the the real goal would be to convince people that their vote won't count and that, that they can't trust any information that they see. And so that's why so many of the things that um, many of us who are focused on countering these operations really believe is important is building resilience in ourselves. Because the best thing we can do to reduce the effectiveness of these kinds of operations is make our own institutions more resilient. So have we been making our institutions more resilient? Lawmakers have not been doing nearly enough to prevent this since 2016. We have seen, you know, some additional money from Congress for state election systems. It was a different part of the Russian operations in 2016 was actually to probe different states' election systems, um, the actual sort of voting mechanisms or the voter rolls. So we saw some additional money that was given to the states for improvements to electoral infrastructure, although it wasn't really tied to any particular kind of cybersecurity improvements or standards or anything like that. A bunch of other pieces of legislation that would get at some of the social media manipulation 
regulation that would get at political ad disclosures that would get at other kinds of real robust mechanisms to harden our election systems um, to put in place automatic penalties automatic disclosure requirements I could keep going down a very long list of all the things that have gotten stuck in Congress you know one of the things we know from reporting is that while there is good effort being done in places like DHS or in parts of the intelligence community and the FBI that this the discussion of these issues is often kept at a relatively low level because once it gets to the White House and to the president, he sees it very much as a direct attack on him. The Washington Post reported that when Trump was told that lawmakers had been briefed on intelligence suggesting Russia wanted to see Trump reelected, the president grew angry. Trump directed much of his anger at his then acting director of national intelligence, Joseph McGuire, and his staff, accusing them of disloyalty for speaking to Congress about Russia's preference. Shortly after, Trump ousted McGuire and named his replacement. And to me, as somebody who served in the National Security Council, this is something that's extremely dangerous. That We depend on the intelligence community to do the best analysis it can and present the best facts that it possibly can. Those facts are often really unpleasant for any president to hear. And when the president takes actions that could be seen as discouraging the intelligence community from warning about threats to the nation... That could put the United States in an incredibly dangerous position. As 2020 continues to unfold, we see several actions from a sitting president that Laura says have the potential to carry major consequences for our democracy. The perceived politicizing of intelligence and the suggestion that our electoral process is rigged. Elections are one of the most important institutions in a democracy. And elections are based on trust. It's based on voters showing up to the voting booth, casting a vote, and believing that their vote is going to be counted. And that is the single most important thing that a citizen can do in a democracy, is to cast that ballot and to believe that it's trusted and to believe that it's counted. And so trusting the outcome that is ultimately announced and believing that the process has been fair is really core to the function of a democracy. And anytime we have voices, particularly leadership voices, that are casting doubt on the integrity of our institutions, particularly without any evidence, it is extremely damaging to the function of those institutions. A foreign country exploiting vulnerabilities in our electoral process and a president willing to capitalize on some of those vulnerabilities, specifically the discord within a major party, it all feels like new territory for American democracy. Yet a politician finding ways to expose weaknesses in the opposing party feels not so unusual. So I turned to Sean one last time to ask, based on his reporting, which is it? Like a lot of what? Trump does and says uh, it's pretty unprecedented to hear an incumbent president actively interfere in the other party's primary in the way that he is doing right now. Uh, We haven't seen this in modern history, but to your point, given the track record that the Democratic Party has, and, uh, you know, if you look at the the, the emails that were released, if you look at what happened in Iowa, the very first contest, the contest that the party had been preparing for for four years, look at the track record that they have going into this, then you can understand why somebody would try to seize that opportunity and do that. Is seizing that opportunity putting our electoral process at risk in any way? Well, it's certainly stoking 
doubt about the process, which a lot of people think can be a very, very dangerous thing if you're questioning the legitimacy of these primaries, these caucuses, and eventually the election itself, you're effectively questioning American democracy. And that, to a lot of people I've talked to in both parties, think is a very, very dangerous road to walk down. So on the one hand, there are legitimate criticisms that people can raise about what Trump is saying. There are legitimate criticisms that people can raise about how the Democrats have conducted themselves over the past few years. Um, But if it rises to the level of questioning the entire validity of our elections process, that's something that worries a lot of people and worries them about where that road might lead in the future. This has been another episode of Can He Do That? If you have questions about the 2020 election that you want to hear answered here on our show, let us know. You can submit your questions at wapo.st slash 2020questions. That's wapo.st slash 2020questions. We look forward to getting them. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the excellent Carol Alderman with production help from Ariel Plotnick, design help from Kat Rudell-Brooks, logo art from Loren Boglio, and theme music by Ted Muldoon.